the failure started to really get to me and I couldn't understand why the technology that we were building was so great and yet the business outcomes were so poor. And so I thought, okay, I need to learn more about business. This is Decoding Digital and I'm your host, Daniel Sachs. Every episode, we hear from someone who is working to build something new in the digital economy. Each guest has a unique perspective to share, and together we work to understand or decode a trend that is shaping our digital world. Today, I'll be decoding the long-term stock exchange with Eric Lees. Let's dive in. When a book called The Lean Startup was released in 2011, it quickly sold a million copies and was translated into 30 languages and completely changed the way a generation of founders built and launched their companies. Since then, the book has become a global movement with ongoing education and meetups in 94 cities across 17 countries, and that continues to influence the way businesses are run. Today, we're gonna meet the person behind the lean startup phenomenon, Eric Reese. Eric is an entrepreneur and investor with two decades of experience in Silicon Valley. He has advised startups venture capital firms, large companies such as GE on product strategy, and he has served as an entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School, IDEO, and Pivotal. Eric's latest project, the Long-Term Stock Exchange, is looking to transform the way that companies IPO, putting an emphasis on sustainability and enduring success that delivers value to more people. Eric, thrilled to have you on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Amazing to always connect. So um, we've known each other for a while, but I uh, have to say it for the listeners, the, the Lean Startup uh, methodology really transformed the way we started our company. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you got to writing the book and starting this movement? Oh, thank you. And, and admire what you've taken the tools to build. Uh, it's been awesome to watch. So yeah, my story begins uh, as a lot of software engineers, you know, and programmers did. I, I was a programmer as a kid, you know, loved computers and technology, did a computer science degree. And then kind of my life took this detour because I happened to be in school at the time of the dot-com bubble. And so when dot-com mania swept the world, you know, I got swept up in that too. I wound up doing a number of startups. Um, but the, the way people thought about building startups at, you know, in the, in the end of the 20th century, wasn't very sophisticated, certainly by not our standards now. And I, I'm in, and I was the least educated of all the founders that <laughs> attempted anything in that way. So uh, it didn't, it didn't go very well, but I kind of got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug and I wound up doing a series of startups that failed in ever more spectacular ways. And what was interesting, you know, and when I look back at it in retrospect, the Silicon Valley ethos that if you failed, that was actually a learning opportunity. And that meant that you were like more qualified to do the next startup than the previous one. I didn't understand that, you know, coming in. So it took me a little while to appreciate how powerful that was. But nonetheless, the failure started to really get to me. And I couldn't understand why the technology that we were building was so great. And yet the business outcomes were so poor. And so I thought, okay, I need to learn more about business. And so I was trying to learn and educate myself about how, how do you build a company in a different way that would get to better outcomes. And what I discovered is that a lot of conventional business thinking is really optimized around the use case of large companies that are building in a stable world and a consistent product and have been for a long time. And not to say that that knowledge is not useful. It just wasn't especially useful to me. And so as a founder, first and foremost, and then as a leader of companies, and then eventually as a writer, I went on this many year odyssey to try to understand what 
are the management principles that make sense in an entrepreneurial context, in a context where you don't know what's going to happen in the future, where you're trying to do something fundamentally new. And that ultimately led me uh, to a bunch of related theories like customer development and agile and lean manufacturing. And that ultimately culminated uh, in this idea called lean startup, which now I can't believe it's been 10 years uh, since I started writing about it or more now. Um, and so it's been a, been a really wild ride where, you know, I feel like I got access to this almost like secret knowledge about how entrepreneurship really works. And it's nothing like you see in the movies. It's nothing like you read in the kind of business school case studies. It's, it's totally different. And I, you know, have had the chance to share that with a lot of people. It's been, it's been a very, um, very moving decade. Yeah. People say like, there's no manual for starting a startup. Um, but I think, you know, using a certain methodology and knowing you can be wrong about this, but if you iterate and you have conviction in your vision, you can, you know, thrive and, and push past it. You must get overwhelming feedback with the methodology and how it's applied. But um, what's one, one thing that people don't understand? You know, the most difficult thing for people to grasp is that everything a startup does is an experiment, whether you admit it or not. So people sometimes say, well, because there's no man, everyone knows every startup is different. There's no manual. There's no repeatable set of practices that you automatically confer success. People say, therefore, kind of, there's nothing to say about how to build a startup. But that's like saying that each like, discipline of science is different, and therefore, there's no such thing as an experiment. So in a startup, we're doing an experiment. We can pretend we're doing something else. We can say like, oh, no, I'm just following a business plan, or I... You know, there's all these different theories about what it is that you do when you, when you form a new business. But my view is that you are running an experiment, no matter what philosophy you adhere to. And therefore, all of the tools of the scientific method are at your disposal. We can say, well, what would make a good experiment versus a bad experiment? What, what's a falsifiable hypothesis versus not? There's all this kind of scientific concepts that we can bring in. And it's funny because so many startups are started by scientists and engineers and people who, who in the lab are extremely scientific and very uh, dedicated to the epistemo uh, yeah, epistemology of science. And yet when they apply business thinking to what they're doing, they often act more like astrologers than scientists. And so I think that's still one of the most unappreciated, underappreciated things about Lean Startup is that a scientific mindset is really valuable, uh, even though the specific tactics that you're going to use to put those principles into action is of course going to be different depending on stage and industry and the, you know, the character and interests of the founders, et cetera. Got it. And how can lean startup methodology be applied in larger organizations as well? This was a big surprise to me. You know, when I first was working through the theory of lean startup, I noticed something. I said, gosh, lean startup really to me seems like it's more about uncertainty than it is about company size. Like I always thought that the essential definition of a startup was like a small company. And that's kind of how we use those, those terms. We use small business and startup in the world interchangeably. But that doesn't really make any, any sense. You meet most entrepreneurs. They're not striving to build a small business. In fact, very few small businesses are intentionally designed to stay small. We want them to grow. So if your goal is growth, then there's something different about uh, uh, something that's striving for growth than a small business. And eventually what I realized was that anytime you face extreme uncertainty, about what's going to work in the future. You're doing a startup, again, whether you admit it or not. And so I wrote in my book kind of as a, as a bit of speculation. I said, look, it seems to me like these ideas should be equally applicable in a two-person company, you know, two founders in a garage, or 200 or 2,000 or 200,000 
doesn't seem like size or, or industry or sector should matter. What should matter is like fundamentally doing something new. So anytime an existing large company tries to build a new product or enter a new market or conditions on the ground change dramatically, like if there was a global pandemic or something, anytime you have that extreme uncertainty, you're automatically in startup mode no matter what. And therefore the techniques of lean startup ought to be applicable. You know, if you think about it. And I didn't know if that was really true. That was a bit of deductive reasoning from the principles of Lean Startup, but it's proven true over and over again. And in the years since the book was published, as you mentioned in 2011, I mean, just so many companies of so many different sizes. I think I have the complete order of magnitude set now, like, you know, from two founders in a garage up to big multinationals and governments and, um, you know, military and stuff. People have tried to apply the Lean Startup framework and they've done it successfully. So in a big company, the major, major difference is the portfolio of work is weighted really differently than in a startup. So if you think about any given organization, certain amount of its work is high risk, high reward, high uncertainty, and other of its work is like relatively stable and well-known. I mean, even a tiny startup, as soon as you have two customers, you immediately have to figure out should I try to get two more customers or should I try to serve these two customers, right? You always have this dilemma between the new and the existing. Well, in a big company, a lot of the portfolio is heavily weighted to the existing, but on absolute basis, the startups, like you, there are some big companies that have more startups currently active within the company than all of Silicon Valley put together. They're that big. But if they use 20th century general management principles to manage those startups, they do an extremely poor job of it. So a lot of the Lean Startup framework is simply taking these principles and kind of unlocking for corporate managers that just because, you op just because you've learned discipline of management in a certain way doesn't mean that that's the only discipline of management available. And so, yes, you have mastered general management, but there's also this entrepreneurial management discipline that you can get good at. And so then it takes entrepreneurship out of this like mysterious force that all oh, these crazy kids do. And it's like, no, this is a process. This is a discipline that you can master. And we can take many of your historic corporate strengths and apply them to doing entrepreneurship well or poorly. It's kind of, it's kind of up to you. And for companies that exist in the 21st century, anyone who thinks like, oh, don't worry, my industry is safe. There's not going to be any disruption in my business. Like, I mean, it's just, come on, those days are over. So uh, as more and more and more managers, I think have really awoken to the true uncertainty of the century ahead, there's been more and more adoption of techniques that are designed to mitigate that uncertainty in a corporate context. The Lean Startup methodology has been an inspiration to me in growing AppDirect and has been you know, really at the forefront of the way startups think about evolving. But it was also clear on over the last decade how Lean Startup methodology has touched all types of businesses, whether it's Fortune 500s, whether it's government, or whether it continued growth. So one of the things we did uh, with our organization early days when we started was talk about the Lean Startup methodology and how important it was. But the irony was we were working on like multi-year sales cycles. It took us two years to get to potentially even talk to our first customer, then more years to launch. And five years in, we had our core KPI, which is app transactions. And people said like, how can you call yourself a lean startup if you know, it takes five years to launch? I, I love that you're, you know, you're working on such an ambitious long-term project. I bet you have a good answer on that question. <laughs> oh yeah, listen, no, long-term stock exchange, we're about to launch finally after almost 10 years of work. So. Um, there's nothing about Lean Startup that, like, it's fun. here's the funny part. So 
people read these stories of lean startups who did a specific tactic. Like if you know, you're using like uh, the founders of, of Instagram use lean startup uh, and they made a very famous pivot and they, you know, everything with Instagram happened so fast compared to if you're building like a nuclear power plant or something like really long. And so people then say, well, gosh, if fast means you can ship every week or every day, I mean, one of the startups I built, we shipped 50 times a day um, practicing what's called continuous deployment. So therefore, how could something slow also be fast? And of course, it's the wrong comparison. The point is not like, oh, did you, can you pivot faster than Instagram? The question is, are you learning faster than whatever the normal cycle time is in the industry that you're attempting to disrupt? So if it normally takes a year to do something and you can do it in a month, then you're faster. If it normally takes five years to do something and you can do it in one year, then you're faster. If something normally takes 100 years and you can do it in 10 years, that's actually pretty good. So the last time someone attempted to, to build a new uh, stock exchange, the listing venue um, with a new corporate governance model is the creation of NASDAQ in the late 60s. So we're doing okay, even though we're 10 years in. I don't, I don't mind that at all. And you see that a lot in businesses where, you know, in the 21st century, the, the, those who learn fastest win. So speed of learning really is the fundamental unit of competition. And so everything you do to accelerate that learning is really key. Now, that doesn't mean that it's fast in any objective sense. So there's like fast and slow are only concepts that make sense uh, relatively. So an organization that, you know, can, can put out a new appliance every year when their competitors only put one out every five years has an incredible cycle time advantage even though compared to an app, it's really slow. So what's your vision for the long-term stock exchange? I actually wrote about this in the Lean Startup. That's how long I've been thinking about it. Um, I think that many of the problems that afflict our society today have as their root cause a, an infection of short-term thinking that has seeped into the incentive structure of all of our major institutions. And a lot of that has to do with how our public markets are currently constituted. So if you go, if you just go interview middle managers around the country or around the world, and you say, hey, what are the top three problems that afflict your organization? You can be talking to a government, an NGO, a for-profit, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. The fact that there is short-term pressure and short-term thinking at the top of the organization is like practically number one, two or three of everyone in the world. It's, it's an incredibly pervasive belief that we've kind of lost the ability to make long-term investments as a society. And so our view with LTSE is that if we can fix that in a really root cause way, create a new public market, same regulatory category and stature as NYSE or NASDAQ, that has long-term thinking, that has multi-stakeholder governance, uh, that has diversity and inclusion and environmental sustainability uh, really baked into the listing standards, the requirements to list there, then you can reverse some of these really macro trends that are uh, driving our civilization into late stage decline. So it's, you know, it's kind of a big idea, but it's actually kind of simple. Like it's just a funny thing where like the more ed educated people are, like the, the policymakers and the politicians and the, you know, the really fancy people with the fancy degrees and the, you know, all, all this learn, like, they sometimes get confused about like how bad is the problem or maybe this is just temporary or maybe it's actually fine. Like there's a lot of kind of defenders of the status quo, but when you actually walk the factory floor, any place where people work for a living, the pro this problem is like really well known and is considered, you know, grievous. And so in, in some ways, all we need to do is kind of give the people that actually create the value for organizations and really empower them to stand up and say, no, this is not, this is not the right way to run a business. It's not even like 
people often frame these things as like, oh, are we for the environment or are we for economic growth? As if acting in a non-sustainable way is a good way to get economic growth. And it's just a misunderstanding of where true economic value comes from. When we operate, when we make long-term investments, right? When we plant we plant our fields long before we try to sow them. When we're good stewards of the resources that we've been given, we actually outperform from a financial point of view. So if you look at the very, very best companies, they naturally espouse these values. And that's especially true in this next generation uh, of founders. So what we've done is kind of build an alliance of uh, the founders and the investors who really see things this way. And we're not saying, hey, the whole world has to change on our timeline. We're just saying we're going to create at least one venue in the world where you know, companies are the customer, not traders, where the focus is long-term value creation and not just who trades and divvies up the value that we create. Really strong value proposition. And I think as an entrepreneur, you want to focus on creating value. You want to focus on living by your values and doing good. And, and this is definitely a, a way to, to enable that. Tell us about where you are on your journey and some of the good news with uh, recent approvals. So I, I'll tell you a funny story. So when I, I first started this company, gosh, I don't know how many years ago now, long, 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 long time ago. Um, a lot of, when you want to say, I want to start a new stock exchange, people look at you funny. It's almost like you said, like, oh, I'm gonna, I want to create a new moon. And they're like, uh, first of all, we already have one. So do we really need another one? That's like my first reaction. The second reaction is like, also, you're just a human being. Like this is like, cosmic matters are not for you, right? So like, this is not the kind of human scale endeavor that you can do. So it's like, this is impossible. You can't, we've like, we've got two exchanges already. We don't need another one. And also nobody can create a new one. And what are you talking about? So it has this kind of incredulity about it. And many of the people who make their money from the financial system are not exactly so happy to help an upstart person come in and disrupt. So it actually took me a lot of years just to get a clear answer to my question, which was like, how do you create a new stock exchange anyway? And I finally found this lawyer and he said to me, uh, you know, it's not that hard you have to fill out a form one applications. And I was like, I don't understand what that means. And he's like, you know, the form one. And I'm like, not following you. And he's like, okay, let's take a step back. You know how government forms are all numbered? I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay, well, this is SEC form number 001, the application to establish a national securities exchange. It's just a form. Now, the form is 200 pages long. It's very, very complicated, but like, it's not inhuman. You don't have to be a certified demigod to, it's just, it's a form. The United States Congress has laid out a legislative process by which this is done. And so it took us five years to fill out that form, but we did get what's called the form one approval from the SEC last year. And then that gave us the kind of regulatory power to kind of do everything that NICE and NASDAQ can do. But that's not enough. We then, on top of that, we wanted to say, no, we want to have differentiated listing standards. The whole point is that if you want to list on LTSE, it has to be a meaningful commitment to these principles I was talking about a moment ago. So that we got that approval last month. And if not for COVID, we would be actually launched and trading stocks right now. So as soon as the financial market stabilize, uh, we expect to be able to launch the trading platform. And at that point, we'll be able to start soliciting companies to list on the platform and abide by the principles. So it's, so it's going to be a pretty exciting year for us. Congratulations. So let, let's decode that a, a little bit further. So let's say I'm a company that wants to go public on your stock exchange. What's different um, and what's, uh, what's required? Yeah. So we take all of the existing corporate governance standards as a base. So listing an LTSC is about being held to a higher standard than with a conventional um, uh, IPO or direct listing. 
so much so that you can even dual list. So we actually allow companies, if you still want to go ring the bell and have an NYSC IPO, amen, uh, you could just add LTSC as a secondary listing. Are you going to have a bell? That you can ring the bell in New York. It's fine. Well, no, no, what, oh, you, you know, you have no bell for you guys. Do you have like a version know. of uh... We haven't, you know, we haven't like, I almost like, I don't really believe in jinxing things. So we haven't okay. even gone there. We'll get the thing open and then we'll, uh, then we'll figure that out. We, have, we, should, we should be so lucky to have, um, to have the opportunity to list companies. We'll, we'll figure out what the right ceremony is tomorrow. Okay, good. Well, I, th I, th I feel like I'm sending good vibes. I think it's going to happen. And if any of the listeners have ideas to Eric on how yeah, to send them in, send them in. We love, we love to hear it. Cause the challenge with it is like a lot of the IPO uh, iconography and ceremony is about the moment of the debut itself, which is a little bit like having an amazing wedding, which I think is great. I mean, I listen, I had a, I had a really beautiful wedding. I think having a great wedding is good. Hiring a good wedding planner, A plus. But like a stock exchange is not a wedding venue. It's the place where your company is going to live for the rest of its corporate life. It's, it's the equivalent of the marriage that you're going to have with capital markets for a long time. So I think part of this, like the, the symbolism of it, and of course, like the substance of it is like, how do we help companies understand that they're making a really significant commitment and how do we make that commitment meaningful to all of their stakeholders so that their employees, their investors, their managers, but also the communities in which they operate, their vendors, their partners, the citizens of their digital republic, if you will. How do we help those people believe that this is a company with purpose and whose purpose is sincere? Because a lot of the lofty language you see in kind of your typical S1 filing where they say, oh, we're going to be good for the world. Like if you really analyze it, it's like, have they actually made a commitment to do anything specific? Or is this just like sounds good, vague corporate speak? And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of companies, they failed that test. It's, it's been revealed that those were empty promises and just words on a piece of paper. They weren't real. So when companies list with LTSE, they have to adopt corporate governance policies that are in accordance with our key principles. So, for example, um, companies have to have compensation of executives and boards that are aligned for the long term. They have to reward their long term shareholders and engage with them differently than for short term shareholders. They have to report. Uh, in a more holistic way. They have to take care of their employees, their environment that makes certain uh, diversity and sustainability representations. So each company's specific implementation plan of those principles will be different. We don't believe in a one size fits all corporate governance model, but the commitments that they're making are real. They're enforceable and they're independently verifiable. So the public can look at a company that's listed in LTSC and say, this is not like what's come before. This is a company with sincere intention to do things differently, to treat their employees and their other stakeholders fairly. And that brand benefit, I think is also like really important not to underestimate because so, many, so much of corporate America is dealing with this crisis of credibility and trust precisely because of all these scandals. Too many people get caught up in that celebration, the wedding analogy, right? But ultimately, yeah. as an organization, there's a fear that, okay, you go public and then your team members feel like that was the exit and that you, you lose motivation or things change. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it's a good point that uh, almost by not celebrating that moment, it shows that you're actually just recommitting for a longer point in your journey if you're, if you're long-term oriented, right? I'll tell you one of my least favorite words in the entire startup lexicon is the word exit, right? Like, why do we celebrate the exit? Like who's exiting exactly? The only people who exit are the early investors who listen are being rewarded, but the very, very best early stage investors, they don't actually exit at the exit. Like if you look at some of the best VCs, their returns 
after companies go IPO are even more than the returns pre-IPO. Like the people who really believe should stay on the cap table, that's what's worthy of celebration. And in too many companies, the exit is the time when the key employees exit. And for a lot of customers, think about how you feel when one of the, your favorite products gets acquired by a public company, has an exit. You're like, oh, this product is probably exiting from my life. It's not gonna be as special as it was. So the fact that we've like allowed this like really important moment of the public being allowed to enjoy the prosperity that these companies can create, that we've turned that into a negative because now we know that the companies are gonna become soulless, corporate, barren wastelands. Like how, what have we done? That doesn't make sense. The thing we should be celebrating is not the exiting of those who are leaving, but the fact that the founders are staying, that the employees are staying, that new investors believe in the growth potential of this enterprise. And so, yeah, I think we have to totally reimagine, reconceive what we're doing with these kinds of transactions. And then we have to reverse the trend that we're on, which is that companies are going public much later. The number of public companies in this country is in a significant decline over the past 20 years. So the public is being systematically locked out of the opportunity to go on this growth journey. And that's not right either. So I think we got a lot to fix. Okay, take the experiment of the Lean Startup methodology. You know, where are you on your experimentation? Oh, I love that question. That's, that's awesome. I'll tell you how it honestly feels to me. Like I, I, I really, I'm not a believer in over-promise, under-deliver. So I don't want to say like, oh, we have the answer and LTSC will solve all our problems. You know, this is a huge, it's a bigger problem than any one of us. And it's going to take many kinds of reform to fix it. And especially at this current moment when the economy is under such strain and the human toll of what our society is going through, especially in this country, uh, is, um, is both heartbreaking and very, very daunting. But here's how I feel, honestly. There's something magical about interfacing with the root, the root cause of so many symptoms. And I've worked on a lot of kinds of things in my life. And like when you're tinkering at the edges, things are easier. When you're at the heart of the system, when you're in, when you're in the high leverage moments, things are much more difficult. But small changes have the potential to make huge consequences. And having access via the stock exchange to, I feel like I got to go into these dusty old control panels that are like, you know, we live in this like utopia that was designed, you know, mostly by our grandparents. We just are the inheritors of this incredible system. And we've been tinkering with it around the edges for decades, but like the true, true, true heart of the system is a relatively small number of very powerful controls. And I feel like we step into these control rooms and some of them are like dusty and old. And you're like, no one's been here for decades. And you're like, what? There's a red button here that says launch new stock exchange. What, what happens if I push this button? And most people are like, I don't know. We haven't pushed it in kind of a long time. And you're like, okay, well, what if I pull this lever and that lever? Like there are these like really fundamental controls that are part of the foundation of the world that our grandparents built for us. And we have to, it's almost like we have to remaster using them for the public good. Uh, plenty of people, like that button has been pushed. There have been new stock exchanges created, but it's all been about stock trading, efficiency and velocity of trading. We have built the world's most effective and efficient trading system. If you want to trade 50 share lots of public companies, like we're really good at that. But what if your goal is not to just like make a quick buck on arbitrage, but what if you want to make a fundamental investment? Right? You, forget, you forget entrepreneurs for a second. What if you're like a pension fund and your job is to make sure that you can provide for your employees' retirement decades from now? 
Uh, so you want to make a large investment in the future and you want to do that with a public company. Well, our system's actually not that good at that. Uh, and so part of this is just about reorienting from this short-term transactional quick wins um, financial system to something that's more enduring. And I think when you make changes at the deep level from, from first principles, from what is right, what is in the public interest, I don't think we actually know how impactful that can be because we do it so rarely. So I'd like to go find out. Really inspiring. So, so I want to shift. You've used a few themes that, that really resonate with me. One is talking about a set of principles and starting an organization. The other is this vision for the long term. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs uh, or other people at work in living in a first principles way and kind of building a vision from the ground up, but, but still maintaining this long term thought in mind? Yeah, I appreciate that question. I, I have had, I feel like the, the, the ability to think from first principles it's like one of the greatest gifts that having an education can give you. I, I feel enormously grateful that um, I don't just approach business uh, as a spreadsheet, but have had this kind of more philosophical uh, approach that has to do with the way that I was raised and, and the educational opportunities that I had in my life. And so if those who have not had similar opportunities, I strongly recommend uh, that, you know, to whatever extent you can start to study from first principles, study philosophy, study the structures that underlie the world that we live in, it's, it's extremely rewarding in a, as, as a personal matter, but as a business matter, it's so essential. So the one thing I would say is most businesses or business plans even rely on certain fundamental leap of faith assumptions that have to be true in order for this plan to be a good idea. And some of them are really obvious. Like if I build this product, people will buy it. And, and it's like almost too stupid to say it out loud. You're like, well, obviously I believe that or I wouldn't be doing the business. But if you say, okay, but from first principles, um, which people do you think will want to buy and why? And so you start, you start working out, you work out the math and you're like, okay, so you're telling me, and most entrepreneurs are like everyone, every person in the world is going to want my product. And I love that because then you're like, well, great. That's a great falsifiable hypothesis. If you believe that's true, then you're telling me that the first 10 people I randomly run into on the street today, if I said, would you like to be the first customer of this new product XYZ? All 10 of them are gonna say yes. And I've met entrepreneurs who are so delusional that they're like, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm talking about. I, I've invented teleportation. Who wants to commute when you could teleport? And I love that example because every entrepreneur thinks their product is as good as teleportation, rarely, are any of our products actually that good? But more importantly, actually run the thought experiment with me. Okay, imagine I walked up to you on the street and said, hey, would you like to be the very first early adopter customer of this new experimental technology that will disassemble you atom by atom? But don't worry, it will totally reassemble you in exactly the same place. It's like, you know what? I'll go second. Yeah, I'm interested. I definitely don't like my commute, but I'll, you know, right? So like, even teleportation is not that easy to sell. So whatever you believe, the key to, to success is to write it down and think critically about here's the deduction. Here's like, here's here, deduct, through deductive reasoning. Here's what would have to be true. I work it forward. If you can model it mathematically so much the better. And I feel like I'm like the last person in the startup world who's pro business plan, but not the fiction writing contest of it. You can throw all the word documents away. I don't need your fancy pros. The part of the business, the business plan that I'm interested in is the spreadsheet. It says, if people behave in this way, right? If 10% of customers who see the free trial buy, and if you know 82% of them 
every month decide to renew. And this is the word, like you have an actual mathematical equation that describes why this is gonna be worth a billion dollars one day. Well, let's then, great. Uh, let's go test those assumptions to see if they're really true. And that's, that's how you reconcile these two contradictory impulses that are at the heart of lean startup, but really of any, any business philosophy. On the one hand, it's unequivocally clear that acting quickly matters. Speed of iteration, cycle time matters a great deal. And yet, if your focus is short term, none of that will work for you. It, won't, it, it doesn't make sense. And this is not a new insight of mine. Uh, Toyota production system, they had to work this out in lean manufacturing 100 years ago that having a philosophy of long-term thinking is the foundation upon which rapid cycle time activities make sense. And again, by analogy to a scientific lab, you know, each trial you do in the Petri dish, how fast you can do it really does matter because they add up over a long period of time. But if you don't have an overall hypothesis of what you're trying to learn in the laboratory, just throwing chemicals against the wall is off. It's very fast, but you're not doing science anymore. So I, I have found that combination of urgent action combined with a long-term philosophy very, very powerful. Got it. It seems like that aligns with your GPS analogy. It's like uh, the vision tells you where you need to go, but... Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And people get so confused here because people are like, well, gosh, Lean Startup sounds mechanical. Like I'm having a robot do my startup for me. And it's like, no, no, no. A GPS is a robot. Okay, you get in your car. You don't ask the robot, where do, you, where do I want to go today? The robot does not know. Right. But you have to tell it where I want to go. So listen, I want to drive from San Francisco to New York City. The robot will be like, OK, here's the best route and here's how long it will take. And let's say you start driving, you know, uh, you're starting San Francisco. First thing it tells you to do is go across the Bay Bridge. So it's like, go go to the East Bay. So you're driving over there and you're like, uh oh, bridge is closed down for maintenance today. You wouldn't be like, oh, no journey over. I'll never get to New York this way. Like you just go home, right? Oh, I had a difficulty. Oh, boo hoo. It's a bridge was close. Like, no, now your GPS is going to come in really handy. You say, okay, GPS, help me find a new route to get to New York city and say, well, okay, why don't we go South instead of going East, we'll go South first and we'll cross a different bridge or maybe we'll go all the way South past that. Right. You can imagine all the different things it might tell you. It will help you navigate. So lean startup and all the tools of science are navigational aids to find the best path to realize the vision. So like when we talk about the need to pivot, a pivot is just a, tr a change in strategy without a change in vision. So I'm not, I'm still trying to drive to New York, but I had to pivot. And sometimes the pivots are really extreme. Sometimes you're like, oh my goodness, uh, there's some kind of extreme weather event and I got to drive all the way south to New Mexico before I can cut over east. Or, you know, like I'm in an electric car and I have to stick very closely to where there's a Tesla supercharger or like whatever the constraint of the situation might be very difficult but you still have that true north idea of where you're trying to go. And without that true north, we can't even say whether you're getting closer or not. So imagine if I said, I don't really care where I'm going. I just want to take a drive. And then I've been driving for a couple hours and you're like, well, you're any closer to business success? And you're like, well, I have been driving around a lot. It's like, well, that's not really what I asked. So in fact, I could be driving in a circle for all you know. And so I think for a lot of startups and a lot of business, frankly, there's so much make work and busy work and driving around in circles we don't even know if we're getting any closer, uh, closer to our vision. So it's really important to think rigorously about what are we trying to, to achieve? What would success look like? And then what has to be true? What are those leap of faith assumptions that make success possible? Just going to ask you a, a series of quick questions uh, to kind of right. get your perspective on a few things. So one, what is a book that a lot of people wouldn't think of to read, but that you'd recommend? 
You want something obscure or something obscure. that just people don't think of in, in business? Both. Okay. Uh, one of my favorite books, this is not for everybody. Okay. This is an extremely acquired taste, but if you're a product development person, you work in engineering, product management, uh, uh, actual engineering, you know, any, any of those disciplines. And maybe if you work in, a, in an adjacent discipline like design or finance, you might find this book enjoyable too. It's called the principles of product development flow by a guy named Don Reinertsen, who, who is a un, unheralded genius of the late 20th century, early 21st century. He's, he's, a, he's a really interesting thinker. But the problem with this book is it's structured as a series, I can't remember now, of how many hundreds of deductive theses. And they're numbered. It's like thesis number one, master this concept. And like the entire book is an extended argument about why um, the way we think about product development and flow of products through a product development factory, if you will, the idea factory is all totally wrong. And it's, it's just a, it's an incisive and difficult book. And for most people, like, if you, if you miss one of the links in the chain of the argument, the book is completely unforgiving. It's just like, well, sorry, go return home, go back to start, do it over again. Like it's not, it's not user-friendly in the way that a lot of business books are, but it's just absolutely packed full of really useful ideas. Fascinating. Uh, what's a productivity tip that you have for people? I am not, that is not my, that is not my domain. My, I'm a writer, you know, and I, and I, um, even when I was a programmer, like knowledge work is impossible to be productive at, you know, it just like everyone has to find their own personal way of working that allows their inspiration and creativity to flow. So yeah, I'm, I, I'm not a productivity hacker. Let me put it that way. So what do you do outside of work? Um, I love music, um, so I have a lot of uh, a lot of musical musical instruments down down here. I have all my all my digital modeling stuff, and upstairs is the, uh, all the acoustic stuff. Um, but I have young kids now, so I hardly have any <laughs> hobbies anymore. And uh, and who's a, a hero that you look up to? What's that? What's like a hero that you look up to? Mentor, leader, visionary. Boy, it's so it's so hard to choose. Um, my Myers-Briggs type is like, can't decide what to eat for lunch. So these, these questions are actually excruciatingly, excruciatingly difficult. You're doing um, great. Yeah. You know, I, there's a, you know, people, people often study Toyota production system. And of course they know a lot of the like original, original folks, you know, like Deming and, and others who are part of that. But there's, there's, there's a couple of thinkers who, um, who don't get the credit that they deserve. There's a guy named Taichi Ono. Uh, but even more, uh, a guy named Shigeo Shingo, who I won't get into it. But if you're if you're at all interested in the history of management, like it, it, a lot of MBAs don't get taught that um, the engineering side of the breakthrough. And so I just thought that's that's who popped into my head when you were talking. Fascinating, uh, Eric. This has been amazing. What a great journey! Uh, learning more about startup methodology, uh, long-term stock exchange, and then you know fundamentally first principles and long-term thinking. So this was a really fun for me, and I'm sure the listeners as well. And uh, so great catching up. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for having me on. And, and once again, congratulations. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Decoding Digital, where Eric Reese decoded the long-term stock exchange and touched on his lean startup methodology. A few key things that Eric touched on that really resonated were his conviction around a set of principles. And really when thinking about a new idea, starting from the ground up, by defining your conviction and your hypothesis, but having the flexibility and agility to be able to move and listen to what's going on along the way. I also really was inspired by Eric's focus on how you can both create the vision you want 
uh, while also thinking about good business. And the long-term stock exchange uh, concept is a great example of how a really big ambitious idea that theoretically could take decades to execute on is still something that is worth it to focus on um, and to be passionate to, to make the world a better place. Another huge thanks to Eric for being on the show today. In addition to his work on the long-term stock exchange, he's also hosting his own podcast, Out of the Crisis, where he talks to leaders from every industry who are providing and coordinating relief efforts during the COVID-19 pandemic. Give it a listen to hear inspiring stories and to find out how you can help. Don't miss the next episode of Decoding Digital, where we'll decode venture capital with one of the 100 most important women in Canada, serial entrepreneur and star of CBC's Dragon's Den, Michelle Romanow. I think my biggest piece of advice is like, just get started. (laughs) And here's the thing is you're never going to feel like it's the right time. But by getting going, it's like by jumping in the pool, you have to swim. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.